Spiritual Warfare, study number one entitled The Kingdom of God versus the Kingdom of Satan. Well, it's good to be with you here this afternoon and to share with you from the Word of God. These sessions together, we're going to be sharing six lessons on the general theme of spiritual warfare. And while I sort of introduce those lessons to you, you might be wanting to open your Bible to the fourth chapter of Luke's Gospel. One way that we can interpret the Christian life, although many people don't want to, but one way we can interpret it is that it is a warfare. It is a spiritual war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Now, that warfare has many battles to be fought and many aspects to the warfare, and we're going to be looking at some of them in these uh, next few hours of Bible teaching. And in order to introduce you to the whole six series or, or the whole six lessons, I want to tell you what we're going to be discussing uh, by title. The first lesson, the lesson we'll be doing this afternoon, is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. And we're going to be seeing out, be going to be seeing out of the word of God how uh, there is this unrelenting warfare between two spiritual kingdoms, a spiritual warfare going on all around us between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. The second lesson we call the deliverance ministry of Jesus. We're going to be examining in some detail the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ as he dealt with evil forces, with evil spirits, and with demons. He is our pattern, and he is the one who is our example. And as we get into uh, this spiritual warfare in an intense way, we need to know and understand Jesus' philosophy uh, of this war and how he conducted himself in the ministry uh, that he conducted in it. Then the third lesson we're calling Conducting the Deliverance Ministry. We're going to be sharing with you in that uh, how we got into the deliverance ministry and some of the principles that are involved. And we will come to see that the same things are happening today as this ministry is exercised as happened in the New Testament, in the ministry of Jesus and in the lives of the apostles. The fourth lesson we've entitled How Can a Christian Have a Demon? This is one of the major theological questions that arises out of this ministry. Every time God restores one of the ministries to the church uh, that has been missing for many years, and he is restoring all of the ministries that we read about in the New Testament, every time one of the ministries is restored, like the ministry of healing or the ministry of the baptism in the Holy Spirit or the ministry of deliverance, there are always theological questions arise, especially uh, from the minds and thoughts of conservative Christians. And anytime anything new comes along, they question it. And so people question, well, how can God perform miracles today? Or how can the Holy Spirit be poured out today? And one of the questions which surrounds this deliverance ministry, a very pertinent one, is how can a Christian have a demon? And we're going to be dealing with that at length in session number four. The fifth session, Satan's counterfeit Pentecost, we call it, uh, deals with the dangers of all forms of occultism, all forms of psychic phenomena. Uh, these Psychic practices are running rampant across America today, and they are one of the ways in which Christians uh, become demonically tormented by getting involved in all of that psychic stuff. It's all forbidden in the Word of God. It is frankly supernatural, but it is devilish, and it's forbidden in the Word of God. And we'll spend one hour looking uh, at that subject or at the subject from that point of view. And then the final session is a kind of a catch-all or a bringing together of all of these things, and for want of a better title, we're calling it Lessons Learned from Dealing with Demons. Well, that's the six titles and the six lectures in the series. We'll go back now and begin with the one that we've chosen for this afternoon, which is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. We said that the whole world is engaged in a spiritual warfare between two spiritual kingdoms. It is frankly a supernatural warfare between two supernatural kingdoms. Uh, and I think the whole Christian world needs to come to an understanding of the nature of this warfare. We need to understand that we are in the midst of a battleground. I know lots of Christians don't like to think about the devil. They don't like to think about warfare. They don't like to think about uh, battling things out. Nevertheless, scripturally, this is one of the major uh, approaches to the entire Christian faith. You look at many of the scriptures that uh, teachings to us from the scriptures about how we are to equip and to and to conduct ourselves as soldiers, as good soldiers in uh, this warfare. Paul speaks in, these in this terminology frequently. Uh, it, it is a warfare that we are engaged in. And the fact that we come to recognize that it's a war doesn't mean that we have to lose our joy or our power or our, uh, or our uh, happiness in the Christian faith. It simply means that we must recognize that there is a personal enemy 
out to do Christians in who is opposed to God and the things of God. Uh, Jesus in John's Gospel refers to it this way. He said, The thief, meaning Satan, comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come, he said, that ye may have life and have that more abundantly. And Jesus very simply there lays out this kind of warfare between the two kingdoms. Now, in order to adjust to this kind of terminology or to adjust to this conception of our, of our uh, Christian life, we may have, to do, uh, may have to make a number of changes in the way we've been thinking. The average Christian doesn't like to think of the Christian life as a warfare. Some of you here are old enough to remember uh, when the Second World War broke out back in 1941. I was a boy in high school at the time, and I'll never forget how, as a result of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, within hours and certainly within days, our whole nation shifted from what we call a peacetime economy and a peacetime footing to a wartime footing. And everything else took a back seat to the one supreme precedent, which, one, which was, we've got to win the war. And one of the slogans that we heard most frequently in those days was that we must do this or must not do this for the duration. And everybody looked forward to the, to the victory that was to come and to the end of the war, but as long as that war was taking place, it took precedence over everything else. And our whole nation geared to a wartime footing. We begin to think in terms of victory. We begin to think in terms of discipline. We begin to think in terms of sacrifice. We begin to think in terms of understanding the strategy and the tactics of a subtle enemy. And so I would suggest to you that this is a principle that we ought to consider in the Christian life today. Uh, we are in an un unprecedented spiritual warfare. We live in a time when Satan is pouring out unnumbered hosts of demonic spirits upon the earth. People oftentimes say to me when I'm teaching in various places around the country, they say, well, Brother Basham, I don't want to talk about things like that. I don't want to think about Satan. I don't want to think about evil spirits. I just want to think about Jesus, how sweet and how beautiful he is. Well, I can understand that, and in a way I agree. But nevertheless, we are enjoined by Scripture to confront the enemy, not run from him, and not to ignore him. And it means for many of us that we're going to have to adjust uh, our view of the Christian life and our view of the Christian faith. For some of us, it means we're going to have to uh, reclaim or come back to a, a more biblical worldview than we've had before. I find in my teaching ministry in various churches across the country that the average church member, the average Christian, really does not have or hold a biblical worldview of things. Uh, most of us are products of the age in which we live, in our, uh, our psychological thinking about uh, science and technology, and we tend to have difficulty in understanding or appreciating the more primitive biblical view of the world with heaven and hell and with God and Satan and with angels and evil spirits uh, and darkness and light and sin and salvation because the technology and the conversation of the world has spilled over into the church and many leading theologians, many leading churchmen don't even believe in these simple, in these biblical simplicities about a personal devil. Uh, or about a personal God, or about the reality of Jesus Christ. And almost unconsciously, even those of us who, who know we're born again and baptized in the Holy Spirit, almost unconsciously, some of those things have pervaded our own thinking so that it's difficult for us in our moment-by-moment -moment and day-by-day -day approach to life to think of it as Jesus and as the Scriptures thought of it. Now, I had this difficulty in my own ministry for a number of years. I want to take just a couple of minutes to share with you how I began to become aware of uh, the reality of this spiritual warfare in a very personal way. I've been out of the pastorate for some five years now, but my last pastorate in, in Pennsylvania, in Sharon, Pennsylvania, I'd been there about a year and a half or two years and was having a fairly effective ministry. I had my personal struggles as any minister, as any Christian does. But then a series of things began to transpire in my pastorate. Uh, mistakes, you could call them, or missed appointments, or unexplainable hostilities began to occur in and around my ministry, which I knew I was not responsible for. I knew, although I had my weaknesses and made my mistakes, I knew I was not that dumb. I knew I would not have consciously or even unconsciously uh, arranged things or been in situations where it would have turned out uh, that unsatisfactorily. And I suddenly began to have this awareness that somebody who knew me and who knew my weaknesses as well as my strengths was plotting against me. 
I mean, I just suddenly began to be spiritually aware of an adversary. Now, this wasn't an immediate thing. It, I had to grow through it over a period of weeks and months, but I just began to become aware that the devil was on my back. And I began to see, as never before, how personal he was and how cunning he was. And I had to then began to rethink my own spiritual strategy because when I'd been in seminary, I'd sort of unconsciously picked up what I'd been taught, uh, that the devil was a figment of the imagination of the New Testament writers, that Jesus really didn't mean uh, Satan when he said Satan and he really didn't believe in demons when he cast them out, that these, these were just the superstitious thought forms of the people of the New Testament time and Jesus was accommodating himself to those superstitions. And even though I didn't want to believe that, I, some of that had gotten into my thinking as a result of my years of seminary training. But because of some of these buffetings and problems that began to occur in my ministry, I began to have to try and, and reevaluate my own stand. Was Jesus right in everything he said about this warfare? Or were my intellectual professors right when they said there is no such thing as a, as a good God and a bad God? All we have is one great all-encompassing spiritual reality that we call God. Uh, they would tell me that the New Testament writers lived in a time when the world believed in competing gods, but we live in an enlightened age when we know better. Well, those of you who know scriptures, and I know better now, when we begin to study the scriptures and we begin to take Jesus' point of view in these matters, we come to see and understand that he was perfectly aware of these realities. And each one of us has to make that choice. We have to decide, are we going to believe what the Bible says about these things? Are we going to believe what man's philosophy tells us. And I suggest that we take the scriptures. It's interesting to note the history of the church shows that the church has never really prospered except in those times when people believed in and accepted the authority of the word of God. And one of the amazing things that I've discovered in this ministry that God has gotten me into now, this deliverance ministry, uh, as well as other aspects of charismatic ministry, but specifically in this one, Regardless of the things we don't understand and regardless of seeming inconsistencies that can be pointed out to us in scriptures, uh, I've made this discovery that if we will accept New Testament principles and then apply New Testament methods, a very wonderful thing happens. We get New Testament results. And I don't know of any man who turns his back on the authority of scriptures or who scoffs at the idea of prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit who can in any way come forth with the kind of results that we see happening in, in the miracle working ministries that are being restored through the body of Christ today. I have no complaint at all against medicine or against psychiatry or against psychology. All I say is these are not primarily the methods that were used in the New Testament. Uh, I suppose Peter knew less than the average 10-year-old boy about human anatomy and about the way the body functions, the average 10-year-old boy today because we have courses in health and personal hygiene and so forth. And Peter and the apostles were completely uneducated men. Uh, they didn't know the, even the rudiments of medicine or of treatment or that sort of thing. Nevertheless, when they spoke the word of faith in the name of Jesus, the lame walked and the blind saw. And today, with all of the wonders that medicine and uh, surgical techniques can perform, still it's often a slow and a painful uh, and a costly process to bring health back to, uh, to a diseased body or to restore normalcy to, uh, to a person's uh, physical body. So we have a choice of whether we will use the spiritual principles that are in the New Testament or whether we will take the world's way. Now we can thank God for the good things that doctors and medicines and psychiatrists and psychologists can do. But over and beyond that, there, is these, are, there are these spiritual ministries of Jesus uh, in which when we apply the New Testament principles or, or accept New Testament concepts and apply New Testament methods, we get New Testament results. All right, now let's look briefly at this uh, war between the two kingdoms. A good scripture to look at to introduce it is found in uh, Luke, the fourth chapter. Uh, you have your Bibles open to that passage. Read with me now uh, about the temptation of Jesus, the beginning of the chapter. Uh, Jesus has been baptized in the river Jordan by John. Uh, and then he's led into the wilderness. We pick up the story in the beginning of the fourth chapter. Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee in the glory of them, 
for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him into Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from, cast thyself down from hence, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptations, he departed from him for a season, or as the RSV says, until an opportune time. Notice that when at the close of the temptation, when the devil left, he didn't leave for good, only for a season, only until an opportune time. And we see in this confrontation between Satan and Jesus, uh, the background or the foundation for this spiritual warfare that we're talking about. The key verse or two is in verse 5, 6, and 7. The devil taking him into a high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. And thou therefore, if thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Now the really crucial thing about this scripture, which people have not understood, is simply this. When the devil made this tremendous boast, he showed Jesus all those kingdoms. He said, see all that? And all the glory of those things, every bit of that's mine, he said, because it's been delivered unto me. And I'll give it to whomever I will, and it will all be yours, Jesus, if you'll bow down and worship me. The significant thing about this passage is Jesus did not deny Satan's claim. Now that's rather astounding when you stop and think about it. Satan claimed that all the kingdoms of the world were his, and Jesus acknowledged it. Why? Because it's true. Jesus knew what we have failed to understand, and that is that Satan is the prince or the ruler over all the kingdoms of this world. In fact, when, toward the end of his ministry, uh, just before he was crucified, and he sees uh, a Judas coming toward him, and, and Satan uh, has entered into Judas during that betrayal and so forth, and Jesus knows that, and he sees, he sees Judas coming, he says, Behold, the prince or ruler of this world cometh and he findeth nothing in me. Jesus acknowledged Satan for who he was, the king or the prince or the ruler over all the kingdoms of the earth. Now what this means, people, is simply this, that there are these two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of Satan and there is the kingdom of God. And whether we want to admit it or not, we're either in one kingdom or we're in the other. And there is an unrelenting warfare between the two kingdoms. When Jesus came preaching after his baptism in John and his temptation, he began preaching the gospel, and one of the first things he began to preach was, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, all of the kingdoms of this world were Satan's, and when God sent Jesus into the world, he was sending him into, in one sense, into enemy territory. And Jesus came to set up the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdom of Satan. People say, well, where did Satan get all that power? Well, part of it he had in the beginning, and part of it he got as a result of Adam and Eve's uh, betrayal and fall. When the devil says to Jesus, all these are mine because they've been delivered unto me, talking about the kingdoms, that word delivered in the Greek can also be translated as betrayed. So the Satan was saying, all these have been betrayed into my hands. Betrayed by who? As a, betrayed by Adam and Eve or by Eve and Adam. The serpent was present in the garden. The devil was present in the garden in the form of the serpent. And he beguiled Eve and she was deceived and she tempted Adam and he sinned. And so, and they fell from grace and they lost the dominion that they would have had over creation while they were in the garden. God gave them dominion over all the creatures of the earth, gave Adam that dominion. But when he fell from his sinless estate and was driven out of the garden, that dominion was betrayed into the hands of Satan, betrayed by Adam and Eve in their, uh, in their uh, sin and, and in being cast out of the garden. And also, of course, Satan in the beginning was one of the archangels, Lucifer. We'll be looking at that in a minute. And he had certain rights and power and authority as a result of his heavenly station. And he didn't lose all of that even when he rebelled and was cast out. So cast out of heaven, king and ruler over all the earth, all the darkness, all the kingdoms of the earth. Uh, and uh, so when Jesus appears and Satan tempts him, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, all these are mine. Someplace over, I think it's in 1 John, where John says, we know that the whole world lieth in the bosom of the evil one. So I'm taking time to explain to you philosophically or scripturally the truth about the extent of Satan's kingdom. Now, saying all this, we must admit also that he is a defeated foe. He was defeated on the cross. 
and he has no legal power anymore. It's just that he's still in possession of a lot that is not legally his. And until that possession is wrested away from him by Christians, then he will remain in possession of it. Another illustration we could say is this, that Jesus died on the cross to save all men, that every man's salvation has been accomplished on the cross. Nevertheless, millions of people die in ignorance of that or die rejecting that and go into condemnation or punishment, not because their salvation has not been won, but because they fail personally to appropriate it. And so the same thing is true about this kingdom of darkness. It has been dealt a death blow by Jesus on the cross. Nevertheless, Satan and all of his angelic and demonic hosts are still in control of much of what's going on in the world. Why? Because Christians have not yet wrested that dominion from Satan's hands. So the point we're making is that we're either in one kingdom or we're in the other. And every person on the face of the earth, according to my understanding of Scripture, every person who is not in the kingdom of God or in the body of Christ is automatically under the thrall or the rule of the wicked one. You're either in one kingdom or the other. And I'll tell you, this really shakes people up uh, because the average person, he doesn't want to be told that he's under the thrall of Satan or that he's bound by Satan and his influences, but it's true scripturally. The only way you can get out of that darkness is to get into the light. And the only way you can get out from under Satan's control is to come into the kingdom of God. And so scripturally speaking, you're either in one kingdom or the other. And this bothers people because the average person, if he's not really moving in God or not really Christian, uh, he doesn't want to be considered too nicey-nice. He doesn't want to be considered real evil either. He'd just like to sort of steer a course down the middle of the road, you know, not particular in either camp. But you simply can't do that. You're either going to be, you either are in the kingdom of darkness, in the kingdom of Satan, or you are in the kingdom of God by virtue of the fact that you're a Christian. And increasingly, it'll be shown to us in these days that there is no middle ground. That's one of the tremendous things that's happening by this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the recovery of these miraculous ministries, including the deliverance ministry. What it's forcing the church of Jesus Christ to do is to get all the fence-sitters off the fence. Nobody's going to be able to just pretend to be halfway in and halfway out. Just religious enough to have a little life insurance policy, but not too religious in order that you have to give up having a good time. I mean, there's so many people sitting on the fence today. You know, they don't want to be all the way into God. They don't want to be all the way into the devil either. But what's happening is that the power of the Holy Spirit's cutting a line right down the middle and you're going to, it's going to divide people. You're going to have to choose. You're going to have to judge. You'll either come to know that you're in one kingdom and know that you're there or that you're in the other kingdom and know that you're there. And this is the war that we're talking about between the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. Now let us point out another thing about the warfare. It isn't when, when the devil took Jesus up onto that mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Understand this, the devil wasn't showing him real estate. He's not talking about mountains and lakes and rivers and trees. He's talking about nations and races and people. The devil is interested in the souls of men, just the same as God is interested in the souls of men. It is the human race that is the battleground. You and I are the battleground. That warfare between these two kingdoms is being fought out in terms of our human personality. So an old friend of mine, Rufus Mosley, used to say about this, he said, describing this, he'd say, uh, God's all the time voting for us and the devil's all the time voting against us and the way we vote carries the election. Uh, and this is the kind of warfare that we're in. And many times, not particularly meaning to, though we may side with the enemy because we haven't been aware of how crucial uh, uh, this war is. So make no mistake, the enemy of your souls, uh, the enemy of your soul is a personal enemy, a personal adversary, Satan. Uh, the accuser of the brethren, the devil himself, and he has unnumbered hosts of evil spirits that are in league with him to do his bidding, and they are the, the personalities or the entities that torment the people of God. Uh, and Satan is the prince or the ruler or the governing ruler over all of the kingdoms of this world. Paul over in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 chapter 4 verse calls him the God, Satan is the God or the ruler of this age that blinds the minds of the unbelievers. So in adopting a biblical worldview of this thing, let's recognize the authority that Satan has and who he is. He is a cunning enemy that must be reckoned with. And to pretend that he does not exist is the height of stupidity for a Christian. And yet I know Christians who want to do that. They just don't want to think about those things and they act as if they'll turn their back on Satan that they can ignore him, that he'll leave them alone. Well, he won't. He's out taking hunks out of you every chance he gets. And Christians are foolish to think that by ignoring what he's doing, that they'll ever get victory over him. Okay, now people ask the question so often, well, where did Satan come from or why did God create the devil in the first place? Well, he didn't. 
what God created was, everything God created was good. He, but among his creation, there were angels and principalities and powers, uh, rulers of the heavens, in addition to the human race that he created. And among those angelic uh, uh, princes that he created were three archangels or ruling angels. And uh, uh, the Bible and church tradition tells us that there were three of these ruling princes, Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer. And one of them, Lucifer, rebelled and pitted himself against God and because of his rebellion, for his rebellion, was cast out of heaven along with the rebellious angels with him and was cast down to earth. And we need to see that in the scripture. This is the explanation of where Satan came from. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Isaiah, the 14th chapter. We're going to read two brief passages that describe uh, the fall of Satan or the, Satan's rebellion. The first one is in Isaiah. The second is in Ezekiel. Isaiah, the 14th chapter, beginning with the 12th verse. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? The word Lucifer means light bearer or light bringer. O Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. You see, he already had a throne. He had tremendous authority already. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be down, brought to hell to the sides of the pit. And so Isaiah here, while uh, recognizing the, the exaltation of Satan as he prided himself above God, also pronounced his downfall. It's obvious from the scriptures that the source of Satan's rebellion was pride. Uh, and of course, that's the source of all of our problems today. It was pride that caused Satan to rebel in the first place. It was pride that led Eve uh, to uh, partake of the forbidden fruit. And in this scripture, this pride appears as, as Satan, as Lucifer says, on five different occasions, I will. He exalted his will above the will of God. And this prideful nature that was exhibited became the source of his downfall. This prideful nature that was exhibited became the source of his downfall. And because he wanted to make himself like God or to be exalted above God, it was for that reason, in his rebellion, he was cast out of heaven. There's another description uh, of it over in the 28th chapter of Ezekiel, if you'll turn with it. Uh, turn with me to it. 28th chapter, uh, verse 11 through 17. Now, the first part of this chapter, the prophet Ezekiel has been bringing a word of, of warning or condemnation or prophesying against an actual earthly ruler called the prince of Tyre or the prince of Tyrus. But getting into the spirit and prophesying, often what happens as it did in the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophecies always had uh, relative meaning to their own situation and to their own time, even the prophecies of Isaiah about the suffering servant, Israel. But those prophecies, exalted and inspired by the Spirit of God, also were messianic prophecies about the Christ who was to come. And you read that beautiful 53rd chapter of Isaiah, it speaks not only of Isaiah's time, but it is the prophecy concerning the coming of the Lord, which is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. So Isaiah moves in that prophecy from prophesying about a, an actual time and situation of his own, as all prophets always spoke to. But in addition to that, there was a double, a deeper meaning that Isaiah was prophesying concerning a future event of the coming of the Messiah. So the same thing happens with Ezekiel here. He's prophesying against uh, an actual person, the prince of Tyre, who was an enemy of Israel. But then in verse 11, deep in the spirit, the Lord tells him to prophesy against the king of Tyre, the king or the ruler of Tyre. And here he's speaking of the spiritual ruler of darkness, the motivating spirit behind that prince. And this is a prophecy uh, against Satan. This king of Tyre is a mythical figure. That is, he did not have any historical counterpart. And it's obvious from the context that he's talking about Satan and about, or rather about Lucifer who became Satan. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me. This is verse 11 and 28th chapter of Ezekiel. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say upon, unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Here he's describing Lucifer's status before the fall. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and the gold. And the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day thou wast created. Talking about this exalted status that this archangel had with God in the beginning. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. 
and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God, high in a favored estate before God. Some scholars say he was the number two ruler in this sense under the Trinity. Uh, and thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. These beautiful descriptions of, of unearthly beauty and majesty in the gardens of heaven. Thou wast perfect in all the, in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. Here's the point of the rebellion. By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as a profane, cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God and I will destroy thee O covering cherub from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Here's the pride again. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. Lucifer became so preoccupied with his own splendor and with his own wisdom in God that he began to take credit for it for himself. I will cast thee to the ground and I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. So here are the two chief major passages that describe for us what happened uh, with Lucifer. God did not create Satan. He created an archangel, but he created that angel with tremendous power and authority, and that angel, Lucifer, took it upon himself to exalt himself, pride himself, to take the place of God. And for that, he was cast out of heaven. And on this basis, in the 10th chapter of Luke, if you want to look at it just briefly, when Jesus sends the disciples out uh, to minister in his name, and they come back rejoicing that even the demons are subject to them in his name, in verse 18, he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. So Jesus, who was with the Father in the beginning as the pre-existent Christ, was a witness to this rebellion which took place apparently before man was on the earth and witnessed the fall of Satan as he was cast out of uh, heaven down to the earth. And because he was cast down to earth, uh, and it's generally assumed that this took place before man was created, he was present there in the Garden of Eden, or when God made a garden on the earth in Eden, Satan was there in the form of a serpent. People sometimes ask, and you may ask, when did the rebellion take place? Well, now, scholars are not all in agreement about this, and the scriptures are fairly obscure, but if you want to check them all out uh, with a concordance and this sort of thing, you can come to certain, at least tentative, conclusions. Apparently, it took place sometime before man was created. And uh, if we put two different scriptures together, we, get, we can come up with a rather interesting passage about uh, the effects of Satan's... Uh, uh, rebellion on the earth or with the fact that when he was cast down to the earth. Look back right at the very first chapter of your Bible in Genesis 1 and we're going to read the fir very first two verses, Genesis 1, 1 and Genesis 1, 2. It says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And then in verse 2 it says, And the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, a literal translation, or a really accurate translation of verse 2, and some of your versions of the Bible may have this, some versions say, and the earth was chaos. That without form means chaos. And the description, by the definition of the word chaos, that means something that has been disrupted or messed up or even destroyed or blasted. It means that something is in total disarray. You know when we say something is chaotic. Well, all right, the interesting thing is in the, verse, in the first verse, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we know that what God created, he created well and he created good. But then in the second verse, it suddenly says that what he was created became a, a chaos. Now, uh, what many Bible scholars tell us is that what we have here is what's called the great interval between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And if you add to those two verses, one verse out of Isaiah in the 45th chapter the 18th verse. You don't have to turn to it if you don't want to. I'll just read it. In the 18th verse of the 46th, 45th chapter of Isaiah, we read this, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he established it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. In other words, he created it perfect. He did not create it a chaos. So what Bible scholars have told us and the conclusions they've come to, which I think by considering all the scriptural record uh, is a valid conclusion that God created the heavens and earth perfectly. But when this warfare broke out in heaven and Satan was expelled and cast down to the earth with all of his rebellion and with all of his evil, it was just like a bomb blast hit the face of the earth and the whole thing became a chaos. Satan became ruler over the earth. He lost, uh, he, uh, this was in, 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 his, in the time before man was created, 
But Satan comes down, cast out of heaven, and with all of his evil and with all of his destructive force, as a result of Satan's inhabiting the kingdoms of the world, the whole thing becomes a chaos. Have you ever stopped to think about the scripture that tells about God creating or placing a garden in Eden? You know, just the very thought of, of building a garden is an indication of recreation, isn't it? Of setting something right that's out of a wilderness. The very fact that God came in and created a garden in the earth is an indication that something about the perfection of his creation had been marred and it had become a wilderness full of weeds and all other kinds of things because when we go into a, a piece of land or a lot or something and we put a garden in there, we make a garden, it means we clean out all the stuff that's not to be there and by discipline and order we create the garden or we make those things that are beautiful. And by the very idea that God created a garden east of Eden and put Adam there is an indication that he had to do some rebuilding. And this rebuilding again would be the result of, uh, of trying to bring order out of the chaos that Satan had, uh, had made when he was cast down to earth. So uh, uh, some of the scholars put these verses together, uh, Genesis 1, 1 and 2, and Isaiah 45, 18 in the middle of it, and they reconstruct a cre the passage in Genesis this way. Uh, about this great interval and the time that Satan came in. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, uh, and the earth, comma, though God most certainly did not create it that way, because Isaiah says he created it to be inhabited. And the earth, though God most certainly did not create it that way, became a wreck and a ruin, and darkness covered the face of the deep. So, uh, for if it's any help to you, this is one of biblical explanation for the fall of Satan and the effects of his fall upon the earth and that the earth was in a chaotic state when uh, God placed the garden there and put Adam and Eve there and Satan was already present in the form of the serpent in order uh, to carry on his evil work. Then when he tempts Adam and Eve and they lose the dominion God has given them, that dominion falls into Satan's hands and is added to the power or the remaining uh, uh, what shall we call it, the remaining supernatural qualities of his personality that uh, remained after he was expelled from the garden. For example, the fact that Satan was kicked out of heaven did not stop him completely from having access to the throne of God. He could still appear with the other sons of God, with the other heavenly beings, as we read about in Job, because uh, the sons of God, some of the ruling angelic princes uh, of the heavens, perhaps uh, Gabriel and Michael and others, uh, would be before the throne of God, and on this certain occasion, Satan appeared. Now, this was after he was cast out of heaven. Incidentally, he lost his name Lucifer when he was cast out and became, uh, and the word given him was Satan, which means accuser. Uh, and he's also referred to by the term devil, uh, uh, diabolos, which means the wicked one. But his, he uh, exercises his office as the accuser of the brethren in accusing the children of God day and night before the throne of God. And we read in the book of Job how he appears. Uh, super, he appears along with the other heavenly beings before the throne of God and talks to God. So the fact that he's been expelled from heaven doesn't mean that he, was, that he gave up all of his princely rights or all of his princely rule. God has left him certain powers and abilities. And from our standpoint, those powers and abilities are tremendous because uh, by the scriptures, he still recognizes being the prince or the ruler or the God of this age. All right, so... He rules the kingdoms of darkness on this earth and God is the God of light. The kingdom of God has been established on the earth and in the hearts of men and this warfare between the two kingdoms is taking place and as we said, you and I are the, are the battleground for that war. It is a supernatural war because Satan is a supernatural creature and God is supernatural and increasingly this warfare will be seen to be fought out in supernatural terms. Uh, turn with me to the sixth chapter of Ephesians, and we'll see, uh, we were talking about in the beginning how there are scriptures which uh, uh, describe the warfare, the Christian's warfare in terms of armor, and Paul describes this for us in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, uh, verses 10 to 18. Paul is summing up his beautiful letter to the Ephesians, and he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And here Paul lays this warfare bare. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day 
and having done all to stand. And then he lists the warfare, uh, pardon me, the armor for the Christian. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye may, where ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And so Paul lists in a very picturesque and a very meaningful way here the armor that the Christian is supposed to have. And he lists it in terms of, of armor that a soldier must wear, uh, carrying the figure of speech about the nature of the warfare. And he lists what they are. The first one, he says, have your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness and feet shod with the gospel of peace, and the shield of faith, which is, uh, of course, a defensive weapon, wherewith you, you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And get that picture of, of the fiery darts that Satan would throw against the Christian, and it's the shield of faith that you hold up in order to deflect those things. And the helmet of salvation, the helmet is the thing that covers the head, which covers the, uh, to cover our thought life and our mind. And the sword of the Spirit, the one offensive weapon that we have. The one offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Notice this, about all of these parts of the armor, there's nothing to protect the back. You notice that? So what happens if you turn tail and try to run? <laughs> You're exposed, that's what. God never intended in this spiritual warfare for us to head any direction but that way, to be facing Satan. And the scriptures that we have that tell us about this, uh, about being on guard and be aware of the evil one, and to submit ourselves therefore unto God and resist Satan and he'll flee from us, uh, and to be wary and to be on guard and to be watchful. And in this warfare, we're always to be facing the enemy, not running from it, because God has given us the authority with which to deal with it. Let me just give you an illustration or two. I think we have time about uh, the importance of the Word of God. Uh, those of us who are in a teaching ministry are continually amazed and thrilled at the rising hunger there is in Christian America for teaching out of the Word of God. For so long the church has, has not given the word its proper place, and many churches, many denominations today are, are still far astray from believing in the inspiration of scriptures or of giving the word of God its proper place. Uh, but those of us who are moving in the things of the Spirit become more and more convinced of the reality of the word. And I believed in it. I believed in its inspiration, and I gradually after my seminary years, which uh, put the scriptures a great deal in question, as I stayed in the pastorate and got back deeper into God, I began to come more and more back to the authority of the scriptures, but let me tell you what really convinced me more than anything else. Now, I believed already in the authority of the word, and I've taken it by faith that it's God's word. The seeming inconsistencies no longer bother me, and uh, uh, I believe the limitation is in our understanding, not in the word. But the thing that really convinced me was this, after I got into the deliverance ministry, and I saw when people were under the attack of demon spirits, or when we were in this deliverance ministry and were actually in contact with these evil spirits that were corrupting and controlling people's lives. And on occasion, many occasions, when the demons would actually speak out of their victims' lips, just like they did in the New Testament. We'll be studying that in subsequent lessons. The thing that really uh, intrigued me was the tremendous fear that the devil and that the demons have about the Word of God. They know it's true. James says even the devils believe, or even the devil believes and trembles. And maybe some Christians don't know what the authority of the Word of God is, but I'll tell you, the devil knows what it is. One of the most common forms of demonic torment uh, of people who've been involved in the occult realm uh, and picked up some kind of evil spirits in that realm is their inability to read or retain things from the Scriptures. I've known, I've ministered to countless numbers of people. I said, well, I say countless, dozens anyway over the past few years, and some in really striking instances where people who were t so tormented by the enemy and so bound in certain areas of their lives by evil spirits that the minute they picked up the Bible and started to read, they'd fall asleep. I mean, the minute they got a hold of this holy book. I ministered to a woman chiropractor up in New England who said literally that when, and she was a Christian, baptized in the Spirit, but when she picked up her Bible and tried to read, over she went, she fell asleep. And her husband said, well, I'll read it for you. And her husband would pick it up. Over she'd go into a trance. Literally, mind everything, blocked out. She could read anything else at will, anything that she wanted to, no problem at all. I minister to other people who have no trouble reading or studying, brilliant students and scholars. They pick up the Bible and suddenly their minds begin to be filled with all sorts of obscene thoughts and uh, weird, obscene pictures. 
just flooding in on their minds to where they can't possibly retain the word. Now, where do you suppose that comes from? They can read anything else they want to with no problem. I'll tell you, the devil is terrified of the word of God. Why? Because that's the source of his defeat. That's the sword that we have. Paul says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And if we ever, and of course, that's the thing that has all the promises in it. That's uh, the book that shows us who we are in Jesus Christ. And I've had demons scream out of people at me and say, don't talk to me about the word. Don't mention the scriptures. It causes us pain. Why? Because it's the source of their defeat. And God knows, and the devil knows, who's the winner and who's the loser. And the devil knows already that it's written in the record that he's defeated. And it's an interesting, and in a way, almost uh, uh, an amusing thing to contrast the devil's reaction and fear to the Word of God and many modern theologians who just says, well, it's another book, just another... Uh, it's inspired, but the poets were inspired, they say. And all the years that I was in seminary, and my seminary was not all that liberal, but it was liberal by biblical standards, but there are others much more liberal. Constantly the Word of God was in question. Constantly the Word of God was in question. When I was, let me tell you this story. I think we've got time for it. When I was in uh, Toronto, Canada, in the pastorate back in the uh, early 60s, uh, a little while before I left there, uh, a whole new set of uh, religious publications appeared uh, sponsored by the United Church of Canada and the Canadian Baptists. And uh, they had been in the preparation for years. These two denominations got together. United Church of Canada is the biggest Protestant denomination in Canada. And they'd gotten together and come out with a whole new set of curriculum material, Sunday school material, uh, revamping all of the things that had been done in the past. And what wasn't known to the average church member, either United Church or Baptist, until it was too late, until the stuff was already out, was that the curriculum committee, the group of scholars who got together to prepare that literature, were agnostics. They were the real liberal anti-supernaturalists who didn't believe in anything. A friend of mine, who was the religious editor of the Toronto Star, interviewed the secretary of that committee, who was a well-known theologian and scholar in Canada, and he told this editor friend of mine privately, not for publication, but he said privately, he said, I'll tell you, Alan, he said, we are out to destroy the myth of supernaturalism in Christianity. He said, that stuff is superstition, and there's no place for it in the enlightened age in which we live. And he said, and we've begun it in this first set of materials. But I'll tell you this, within five years, we'll be teaching things openly in our churches that would be considered blasphemy and heresy today. But we know what we're doing. We're out to destroy the myth of supernaturalism in Christianity. It's not tenable in the day of scientific enlightenment. And so what did their literature show? Well, it created a furor all across the churches. Sunday school teachers went on strike. Preachers preached against it and caused division in churches because every, in, in taking the scriptures all the way through it, began to cast doubt upon the veracity of the word of God. Now, it was interesting and subtle the way it took place. It wouldn't come right out and say, Jesus was not born of a virgin. What it would say is, is it necessary to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin to be a Christian? Is it necessary to believe that the waters of the Red Sea really rolled back? Is it necessary to believe that the tomb was empty? Can't you be a Christian without? It didn't come right out and say, it isn't so. All it did was cast doubt. So subtle. You know, that's the way Satan started off in the garden. Remember what he said to Eve? He didn't say, now that's all nonsense, what God told you. What he said was, hath God said, thou shalt not eat of that tree? All he did was introduce doubt. Hath God said? And that's exactly the same technique he uses today. Uh, they had a, one of their definitions, for example, uh, explanations. I have some of these books. They were given to me by this editor. They gave him sample copies. Their explanation of the Moses crossing the Red Sea, some of you, I'm sure, have heard this, and you may have seen it in some of your own modern literature. Uh, that didn't take any miracle. Moses didn't really cross the Red Sea. There wasn't any need for waters to roll back because where Moses did, he took the children of Israel across the Reed Sea. That's up at the upper end where the water's shallow. And they just waded across. There wasn't any need for a miracle. You see, this is the kind, they're always looking for natural explanations. Somebody told this story to some friends of mine who were in a full gospel meeting one time, and one guy was a skeptic telling this story, and this other friend began to shout up and down and shout hallelujah and said, praise God, that's a greater miracle than I thought. And his skeptical friend says, what do you mean? He just explained to him about Moses wading through the knee-deep water, you see, and he said, well, that's a greater miracle than I thought. And, the, and his friend said, why, what do you mean? He says, it means all those Egyptians drowned in two feet of water. <laughs> well... But this is the kind of thing that happens. You see, to cast doubt on the Word of God, Satan wants to destroy the Word of God because it records his defeat. 
And one of the key stra- uh, tactics, one of part of it, a key strategy of Satan in this time is to cast doubt upon the Word of God. Because once Christians begin to believe in it and to take the authority that's there and begin to apply it, then Satan's well on the way to being put to rout. Well, increasingly, we're going to see this war for what it is, which is a supernatural war. Uh, and that's why, as I said in the beginning, there's not going to be any way for us to, to avoid being in on it. I mean, we're in it whether we like it or not. It's not enough to say, I don't want to think about Satan. People will sometimes say to me, uh, uh, Christians who are puzzled, they say, what on earth is happening in our world? Uh, we never used to hear anything about demons and about all that sort of supernatural stuff. And did you know, you don't have to be a scholar to see this. Our whole nation is on a demonic tip. Psychic phenomena and witchcraft and spiritualism and astrology, horoscopes, Ouija boards. We'll be talking about those things in detail in later lessons. Did you know for 25 years, the little harmless game of Monopoly that we all played as kids, that's been the number one best-selling toy in America for 25 years. All of you probably bought it for your kids. I played with it when I was a boy. You know, for 25 years, that was the number one best-selling toy in America until 1971. And then it was kicked out of first place. You know what took its place? The Ouija board. And the Ouija board is not a harmless toy. It is an instrument in the hands of Satan. And people who get involved with it get into all kinds of depression and suicidal tendencies. That's just one example. We'll be talking about that in a later session, too. But this is just one example of how our whole nation is on this psychic kick, you see, uh, because the warfare is becoming supernatural. People say, we didn't used to hear about things like that. No, we didn't. We never used to hear about drugs. I heard a report the other day that at least half of the kids in high school in New York City are on drugs. And one out of five is in junior high. And they're starting their drug education now in kindergarten in New York City to warn against the drugs. We never used to hear about those things. We never used to hear about the bombing of buildings and the tearing down of the flag and the assassination of athletes at the Munich Games. The whole world has gone wild in this kind of thing. This tremendous warfare coming out supernaturally all around us because the Satan is a supernatural enemy. The drugs is one of his supernatural weapons. Witchcraft, spiritualism, and violence, all of these things are supernaturally inspired by the enemy. We thank God for the supernatural outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's sweeping the world and because we're caught in it and we're part of it, and that's wonderful. But you see, Satan has his counterfeit, too. He just matches it step by step. God pours out his supernatural uh, power upon the people of God. Satan is pouring out his supernatural power upon the world. And that great old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he knew exactly what he was talking about. When he says, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And that's true. Satan is supernatural. And he's a miracle worker. But thank God, God is greater. God is always greater. And this is the reason we need this tremendous supernatural power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And to be knowledgeable about this warfare and to know what our authority is, Jesus Christ, in order that we can assert that authority and put the enemy to flight in our own life. Well, praise the Lord. Let's close with a prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for the word of God that leads us into the truth. We thank thee for the authority that we have in Jesus Christ. And we thank thee, Lord, that the Satan is a defeated foe and that we have all power over power of the enemy. And we pray, Lord, that by faith we may exercise that power and gain the victory in our lives and in the lives of those we love by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. This concludes this message by Don Basham.